Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hi, I'm Mark Kate. Welcome to episode 36 of Why We Listen. In this podcast, I meet with my guests to listen to and talk about music. I ask them to choose three pieces of music in advance using whatever criteria they like. And we listen to those songs and we talk. And in this episode, I meet with Sarah Devachi in my studio in San Francisco. Sarah is an electronic musician from Canada who just recently relocated to Montreal. We listen to Mexico by Dennis Wilson, Critical Band by James Tenney, and Untitled Number 11 and Untitled Number 12 from Neandre Day and Usually Just a T-Shirt by John Frusciante. And we talked about working night shifts at the National Music Center in Calgary, vintage synthesizers, and having patience with duration when listening. We've lost a lot of great artists since the last Why We Listen episode. Uh, most significant to me, Prince and Tony Conrad, who we're now listening to in the background in his collaboration with Faust on the track from the side of the machine. So hello from Zurich, uh, where I'm in residency composing and collaborating with my wife, the choreographer and performer Monique Jenkinson Fomique. Uh, we're locked away at Tan's house for two weeks, creating something from scratch, and it's going really well. But uh, I'm also recording this intro in an echoey room surrounded by the spring tweets of birds and urban construction and uh, the sounds of dancers from all over the world who are currently sharing our condo. Uh, three things worth mentioning at the top of this episode. Sarah plays a Dennis Wilson track, who is someone I hadn't really paid particular mind to in the past. However, one of my favorite podcasts, Karina Longworth's You Must Remember This, did a very long arc on the Manson family and their relationship to Hollywood. And one of the episodes is almost entirely about Charles Manson's relationship with Dennis Wilson. It's a great episode. I, uh, I recommend you must remember this really highly, and especially those Manson episodes. Also, uh, I'd been a fan of Sarah's work before meeting with her, but she just released a new album on jazz records titled Dominions that I think is her strongest work. It's, it's outstanding. Um, I'll provide a link to it in the show notes. And if you're a new listener to Why We Listen, might I suggest you should subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to follow my erratic posting schedule. Upcoming episodes feature Matt Worth of the label Revenge, uh, writer, dancer, Antonia Crane, and the performer, musician, Brontez Purnell. Anyway, here's Sarah Devachi. Are you in any way dedicated to vintage synthesizers? Or is that just, is it a preference or is it like a, uh, or is it more resolute? Um, it's a bit of both, I guess. The preference part is mostly just that I like the fact that they're objects, you know? I do editing and stuff like, like I all the compositional stuff happens with a computer. I use Logic and, and everything comes together on the computer. But when I'm actually gathering sounds and making like the bulk of the material for it, I just like playing on something that feels like an instrument. And to me, those older 
electronic instruments, I think they have a lot in common with acoustic instruments in that they each feel like kind of a unique piece. And I like having the limitations that they offer. Again, the same way as an acoustic instrument, you know, that I know what they can do. I know how far I can go with them and I know what they can't do. And I, it's kind of a luxury to be able to like have a bunch of instruments and be like, oh, I like this one because it makes this one sound or, you know, I like this one because it has a nice filter or something like that. It's not super like, you know, logistically feasible, <laughs> but I do like that about them. I guess on the other end, thinking about how they're all analog or primarily analog, that's important for me in terms of the kind of um, effects that I like to produce with them, which I don't really think you can simulate that well with digital instruments. Um, and that just comes from the fact that the analog gear is just so unstable because it's old and analog and, and all of that. Um, that when you get, like if you know, you're know you trying to tune two oscillators on an analog synthesizer, some of them are better than others, but for the most part, they all drift at least a little bit. And it's when it's that kind of space in between when the frequencies are drifting in and out of one another that you get that really luscious sound. And like I say, you can simulate it digitally, but for me, it just doesn't have the same quality. Or maybe it's more work because you actually have to try to make them do that, whereas on analog synths, they just do it on their own. <laughs> What drew you towards these instruments in the first place? It's kind of a unique situation. Um, when I was, how old was I? I guess I was 20. I got a job at a musical instrument museum in Calgary, which yeah, most people don't are surprised to hear that there's this musical instrument museum yeah. in Calgary of all places. <laughs> um, but they have a really amazing collection of, uh, it's primarily, or it was at the time, primarily keyboard instruments. So acoustic keyboard instruments and electronic keyboard instruments. And like synthesizers that I've never seen anywhere else that, you know, they have like a prototype of this one, the Emu Oddity, which was made for Peter Bauman, Tangerine Dream. And it's like, that's the only one ever. And they have it. And I've like touched it and stuff, you know, like it doesn't work, <laughs> but um, it's stuff like that, that like you just don't see anywhere else. So I was 20 years old. I was interested in making music and I, I grew up playing piano, um, which I liked playing, but I didn't see myself composing for it. Like I didn't understand how to make the kinds of sounds that I wanted to with the piano. So it was just kind of serendipitous. Like I was just thrown into this space with all of these instruments, given a set of keys and, you know, <laughs> it just kind of happened naturally, I guess. But it's like I say, it's totally different because most people don't don't have that kind of way of getting into that world. I think it's usually they read about it or something and then they go seeking it as opposed to like, what's this instrument? Let me go Google it and see how rare it actually is or how crazy it is, you know? Do you feel like th your trajectory could have been possible had you been born later where the chances of you maybe growing up with a computer with pretty good synthesis possibilities hmm. might have i don't know it's a pretty abstract question but. yeah i've never i've never thought about that actually um because i feel like kids now who are into analog gear there's this fetishization that feels about the fact that quote we all have access to these uh software Mm -hmm. versions of the instruments totally uh emulations of the instruments but for um 
you know, your generation, my generation and, and, and older, um, it's like, well, that's all there was. Mm-hmm. And it's about not embracing new technology necessarily or considering how to embrace new technology. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like I guess I had never thought about that. And I, I guess it's possible, but part of me still feels like I would at least be making the same kind of music, maybe yeah, having a different kind of platform for it. Um, and it's, you know, the same can be said if I was born in a different city or something, you know, I wouldn't have come into contact with that collection and I probably would never have seen any of those instruments. But even now, like the way that I'm kind of headed, I'm not abandoning electronics by any means, but I, I've been working more with acoustic instruments, trying to get the same kinds of textures, I guess, from it. And I think initially, like I say, it was just that with the acoustic instrument that I was familiar with, the piano, at the time, I just didn't understand how to do what I wanted to do with it. And so I had to go to another format that was more intuitive to me, which the synthesizers were at the time. And I think now that I've done some stuff with acoustics, I feel a bit more, I know how I can manipulate them to my my means. But yeah, it's not that I'm abandoning them. I'm just more interested in working together with them, sort of intertwining them. But yeah, I, I, it's hard to say. I, I want to say no, that it, it wouldn't sound much different <laughs> yeah. if I was born later. But yeah, I guess it's hard to say. Yeah, sure. What are we going to um, listen to first? Okay, I brought three different things. They're, they're all very different. Um, I think the first one I want to play is um, by Dennis Wilson. It's a track called Mexico. It, was, it wasn't on the original um, Pacific Ocean Blue uh, it was on the reissue that Legacy did in like 2009 or something. I don't think I even know who you're talking about. Dennis Wilson, Dennis Wilson? from like, the Beach from the Boys. Beach Boys. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, well, then I don't the know that weather. album. Okay, it's it's an amazing album. It was oh, okay. his only, I think. Yeah, I think he just released the one solo album, um, and then he died in 1983 or something like that. Uh, and I think he might have been working on a second solo album, but uh, yeah, it's really amazing the whole album. But this track in particular, it's funny when. People kind of ask me, like, what influences I have in my own music. I think they're sometimes surprised when I list a lot of, like, pop music and things like that. Because there are actually a lot of sensibilities, I think, in certain types of, not just pop music, but music that's different from what I do, that I still borrow from. And I see it super clearly. But I guess maybe from the outside, it's it's not as obvious the connection. But yeah, like I hear this and it's like, oh yeah, I can see how I borrowed that or how listening to this 20 times over influenced this other piece that I wrote, you know, even though it's like on the surface, it sounds nothing (laughs) like what I do.
Um, that was great. And, you know, it's funny, uh, I'm not I'm not very well versed in my Beach Boys, but um, <laughs> people don't talk about the other brothers too much. No, and I mean, yeah, Brian Wilson is like a genius, but both Carl and Dennis were super, especially Dennis, like this whole album is, I mean, you can sort of... You can sort of imagine the direction that they could have gone if like Dennis or Carl had taken over a bit more than they were allowed to. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. There was something in that family. They had some good genes. <laughs> what about that piece in particular stands out um, for you? It's again, like I, I perceive certain affinities with what I try to do in my own music. I like how repetitive it is. One of the things that I find kind of troubling about like current music and current listening is that people don't seem to be very patient about things, you know, like yeah. a pop song happens in like three minutes and like there's so much that happens. And even in, you know, if you think of classical music, like actual, you know, classical music, um, like Mozart or whatever, there's a lot of different things happening very quickly, even though it's extended over time, there's just a lot of ideas happening and people don't seem to be comfortable with kind of slowing things down. I think that's kind of why drone or ambient or whatever you want to call it, music gets kind of a weird reception is that it, I feel like it makes people uncomfortable a little bit that, you know, they don't know what to do with their, their hands or they don't know how to just shut down and listen. And so in music like that, where it's very repetitive and there's there's more detail every time that line is added or there's something that's changed, there's something in there to listen to and just appreciate, like you say, just like that single bass line, you know, it's nothing complicated. It's just a single sound, single pitch, a single timbre, but the way that it's used, it it sort of focuses itself it, or it, it forces the listener to focus on it, which I really... I try to do in my own music and I find that important almost as like a, a prod, like a moral project or something. So, yeah. I, I find yeah. There, there's often a lot of politicization of drone ambient music mm -hmm. and you know, sometimes it's a bit of a stretch and sometimes it's very real. Yeah. You know, it, it does, it does if you meet it on its terms, whatever that means mm -hmm. it's altering you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, it makes you have to like identify time differently yeah. than most of the world insists mm -hmm. that you treat time. Yeah. But it's funny because I feel like we have more patience for other things, you know, like, I mean, even with, you know, visual art or something, maybe, maybe still not as much like, you know, when you go to a, a gallery or something, most people just kind of walk by a painting or whatever. They don't actually stand there and look at it for even like 30 seconds usually but you know it's it's not weird for us to sort of dedicate time to one thing like reading a book or watching a movie or cooking or something like that you know they're all very isolated experiences um and even in those things listening is always kind of this secondary thing like you know you put on music when you're doing something else you very rarely just put on music for the sake of listening to something you know which i just don't i don't understand I can understand why people are like that, but I don't really understand where it came from, you know, in terms of recorded music. Because, I mean, obviously it's still a thing to go see live music, but 
I would kind of argue that when people go to see live music, it's not even really the music that they're that interested in a lot of the time. It's just, you know, the experience of, of the live thing or as a social. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I feel like there's a degree to which I'm guilty of that. I yeah, think me we too, all are. of course. And, yeah. and, and part of it is like, I'm not going to make apologies for loving an excuse to get together with people who love the same music. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. any, any excuse to collectively mm-hmm. gather is great. But um, another thing about, you know, ambient uh, extended droning tone music, mm-hmm. something I've also noticed is at least in the Bay Area, um, going to those shows, it's the most quiet, focused, respectful audience yeah. I've ever seen in my life, including symphonies and operas. Absolutely. And like theater, anything. Uh-huh. Just it's really interesting to be in a room full of like 22 year olds who don't text, don't talk, yeah. don't even open their eyes yeah. for like these long stretches of time to just be incredibly respectful and focused on music. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird a weird thing and it's funny i i um like i notice it as not so much something that people feel like they you know when you go to the symphony or whatever there's certain rules or whatever you want to call it you're not supposed to clap in between movements <laughs> yeah. and, and all that kind of stuff and, and you go there knowing that you know that there's a certain way that you have to sort of behave um but with those kinds of concerts you know more like experimental ambient stuff when i notice you know, if I've had like family members or whatever, people who don't normally engage with that kind of music come, um, you know, they don't need to be told that you need to be quiet or mm-hmm. that people are going to be maybe lying down or something, you know, <laughs> they just, it's its interesting to me that they just sort of go there and they, they get it just by hearing what's going on, you know, which I, I find kind of interesting. Can you anyway. trace your interest in this kind of approach to music either as a listener or a performer mm-hmm. was there like an aha moment or did you mm-hmm. just sort of gravitate no yeah okay there well, was actually yes, <laughs> yeah um and it, it goes back to uh, the museum again uh, the one in calgary so i used to give tours there every pretty much every sunday for like several years that sounds like the best it job was amazing ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty amazing yeah yeah um so uh, it's it's grown into a bigger organization, so there's a lot more people who work there. Um, but at the time when I would give the tours, it was pretty much only me in the building. I was by myself, and and most of the time, like in the winter, people just weren't coming, right? So there would be stretches of weeks where I just went in for a couple hours and had the place to myself, basically. And so I would obviously play all of the instruments, right, when nobody was around. And uh, one of the instruments that I liked playing was this... Um, pretty large reed organ. I've never seen another reed organ that was that big. Usually reed organs tend to be smaller. They're like harmoniums, like pump harmoniums. Um, but this was a big, big one with a set of foot pedals. And um, I don't remember why I started playing it like this, but I would just like hold down a, a pedal or hold down like an octave on the keys or something for like 15 minutes and just listen to all of the fluctuations that were happening in the overtones just building up. And... I don't know, there was something really just sort of like simple and pretty about it. And for me, it wasn't like I could see somebody walking in and being like, what are you doing? Just sitting here listening to the same note for 15 minutes. But to my ear, it sounded so clear, all the stuff that was happening. It was very interesting. And, you know, it was a static experience sort of on the surface. But when you actually paid attention or maybe it had something to do with actually being close to the instrument, right? Because it's acoustic. So the sound you know, um, is, is the loudest right when you're sitting there. 
so maybe maybe it had something to do with just being sort of encompassed within the instrument but there was just something really fascinating to me about doing that and so that became sort of the experience that I wanted to create but I think it took me a while to sort of realize that it was you know it sounds stupid to say but that I was allowed to do that you know because I guess at the time I was in school and I still was pretty I wasn't listening to a lot of experimental music and so I hadn't really heard a lot of music that was like that so and you weren't in school for music yet, right? No, not yet. Well, I was doing uh, a minor in music okay. when I was living in Calgary. Um, but it was still like all the music that I was listening to or even the electronic music that I was listening to was still very active and still very based on, you know, certain tropes of, of classical music in terms of structure and things like that. And it was never that anybody said to me, you know, that your music has to sound this way or it can't sound that way. But I think I just it didn't it didn't click to me that I could just do that and other people would appreciate it, you know. Did you, as a younger artist, just sort of bluster through that moment, or did you realize that and then hear Pauline Oliveros and feel justified? Yeah, do you know what I mean? I d yeah, absolutely. It was. I think it was sort of like my secret for a while yeah. <laughs> that I would go into work and just like you know sit there on the organ for an hour and. and play octaves and fifths um and it wasn't actually before before i uh started at mills um like about a month or two before uh my partner who also used to work at the museum he's a an electronic instrument technician uh he was like okay you need to know how to play these synthesizers before you get there so he sat me down at a bukla 100 system that they have there and taught me how to use it and then that kind of became another thing where i started tuning the oscillators and then just letting them drift and, and noticing that as well and so kind of a parallel experience but again it wasn't like it was kind of like oh i really like the way that sounds i wonder how i could use it in something else you know so the other one that uh, i brought is a piece by james tenney uh it's called critical band i think he composed it in the late 80s Something like that 88 86 and it's it's long so I'll just listen to an excerpt of it but um it's basically starts kind of as a single tone and then it starts to expand into this fuller texture that has other frequencies um but the critical band in psychoacoustics is um so basically when you have two sources sound sources if they're happening at the same frequency you know you just hear them as one as one sound but as soon as, like, if you were to keep one and start to detune the other one one way or the other, there's this little band of frequencies where you don't perceive them as two different notes. So once it passes this threshold, I think it's usually about four hertz or something like that, that's when you hear them as two separate frequencies. But in between that, it's just this different kind of texture where you get beating patterns and things like that. Uh, and that's called the critical band. So he's kind of playing with that phenomenon of that happening it's a really amazing piece james tenney is is i think one of the most under i don't want to say underappreciated but sort of under recognized experimental composers i think he deserves to be up there with with you know names like terry riley and, and lamont young and paulina oliveros and those people because he was doing um not only really amazing music and really varied music but he was one of the only ones who also wrote a lot and theorized a lot about what he was doing. 
It's interesting. We were talking about that earlier. That doesn't seem like there's enough enough composers who actually enjoy writing about what they're doing or thinking about what they're doing and trying to articulate it. And he did a lot of that. And not all of it's terribly lucid, <laughs> but it's it's interesting. And he was he was an interesting guy, I think. So yeah, I'll play part of this.
Do you know where that was from? That recording, I don't know, but the piece, um, I think it was late 80s, 88, something like that. I would say after Lamont Young, probably James Tenney's music has been the most influential acoustic music anyway on me. Um, Because something like that, I mean, it just doesn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before, you know, going through university and, and taking music classes or playing piano. Do you know a lot about that piece? Um, I know that, I mean, a lot of his compositions like that, and I think it was sort of um, left over from the 70s. It was sort of a common thing that it was kind of for open instrumentation. I think that one's for like 16 or more instruments. Um, and like I say, it was it was intended to be acoustic. Um, I've never seen a score of it, so I don't know exactly you know how things are coming and going or what people are doing. But uh, just from listening, I can surmise that it just sounds like it's a bit open that there are probably certain pitches that or frequencies i guess you could say that people are allowed to play and they can sort of choose when they come in and out it it sounded a bit like people were were doing that so what i thought was really interesting and this isn't about the composition this is about Mm -hmm. the the recording of it Mm -hmm. is it's an interesting piece to hear as a live recording where you're getting audience interference Mm -hmm. because it strikes me that the composition is in a sense, yeah. I mean, I don't know what he, I don't want to be presumptuous about mm-hmm. what he was thinking, but in a sense about the phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And then this phenomenon, which is kind of pure, I mean, it's kind of, imp- it's about impurity, yeah. but it, but uh, it's an illustration of a, an idea. Yeah. And then to have people coughing in the background mm-hmm. is really interesting because it's it's, jarring, yeah. it doesn't strike me as being like, like a punk band live mm-hmm. show where you got to capture like the audience and the energy and it's yeah. about it's happening in this room now yeah um anyway yeah that's a good point because yeah a lot of those like a lot of lamont young's earlier stuff too was all just all the release stuff is all live yeah, recordings there's a studio <laughs> yeah yeah it's a bit odd i wonder i wonder what the reasoning behind that would be do you feel like tenny's work i mean i always sort of feel like the way minimalism in its broadest sense and conceptual art really rose, you know, in tandem in, in mm-hmm. history. Sure. But also there were so many overlaps mm-hmm. um, with uh, artists approaching things in both ways at the same time. And mm-hmm. this, this piece strikes me as a bit of yeah. that too, right? Where I would agree, yeah. Maybe there was a score, but it could also just be a cue card of information yeah. that you can run with. Yeah, for sure. And he, um, actually probably his most famous works were these set of pieces called the postal pieces which he did in the i think the late 60s and i think there are some scores for them but some of them are a bit looser there's one piece it's called it's something like having never written a note for percussion something like that that eros just yeah yeah recorded yeah Yeah. so the score is basically just crescendo decrescendo (laughs) and uh it's very fluxus exactly that's what i was thinking the lamont young ones as well it seems to be kind of a thing, especially in the 60s and the 70s, that composers seem to be more curious about the experience, more so than, you know, even beyond, like, what the tones are or what the, you know, the structure is or, or what kind of function they're using in the music, but more so about the experience of sort of beginning to end and how that feels and, and how that can be manipulated. I mean, it's funny that you you brought up minimalism with him because I feel like most people probably wouldn't call him a minimalist, but... I would definitely, I mean, he's not normally lumped into that category. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his music definitely has 
those sorts of sensibilities, I think also, you know, in terms of how they sound, but the way that he approached them as well, I would say. What I also love about that crossover um, with that, the PC, the one mm-hmm. that Eros just did that I can never mm-hmm. say percussion, never having Yeah, having never a note written a note yeah. for percussion, something um, like that. Is that although some of these works are ostensibly fairly dry, fairly mm-hmm. conceptual, fairly mm-hmm. like the experience of them can be like austere and even mm-hmm. alienating. Yeah, even yeah. even if you love it, it's it can be alienating. Mm-hmm. But there's a bit of play. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of mischief in there. Yeah. Like it's just somehow cocky to yeah. like write a composition that could be on a napkin, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or not even, just yeah. in your head. Yeah. <laughs> um and I kind of love that about yeah. about a lot of this music. Is there there yeah. that seems at odds. Uh-huh in a way, but it's not. Yeah. yeah. I, I played when I was um, still playing piano, I played in this new music ensemble and um, me and another pianist played this Feldman uh, piano duo. And the score was like, it just, it was like handwritten chords with like notes in, I think they were in Dutch. I don't, I don't know why they were written in Dutch, but they were just like weird cues kind of marked. Like it just looked like, you know, a 12 year old had put it together and not bothered caring about how it was presented. Yeah. It's, it's a bit strange that you can get away with <laughs> stuff like that. And yeah. it, it still makes sense. And in a way it, it's more useful because it takes away from the sort of strictness of a score as well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't do a lot of score stuff in my own work. Like I pretty much only have one score for anything that I've ever written, <laughs> even in, I, I mean, the live stuff that I do is all me. And even when I work with other people, I just kind of tell them what to do. I, you know, I vocalize it. I don't write anything down usually. So right. Maybe I'm a jerk too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So this other one um, that I wanted to play is actually two pieces that kind of go into, they flow into one another. And it's uh, by a guitarist, John Frusciante. I... <laughs> uh... I didn't, I'm not laughing at it. I'm laughing. I did not see that one coming. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of, I'm a huge fan of his music. It's been really, I guess I should clarify if you're not familiar with his solo music, it's completely different <laughs> than anything, uh, anything else that he's associated with. Well, I saw some of his first live performances. Yeah. Like I was, I was a Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> teen. I'm still a closet Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> I should be admitting that. <laughs> That's right. Should I or should I, I have ed- a not edit that out? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, moving solo, on. Yeah, <laughs> his solo stuff, excuse me, <clears throat> is totally different than than anything else. And um, this one in particular, this is his first solo album, I think. Um, it was uh, Neandro Lede and usually just a T-shirt, which. Say that again. It's Neandra Lede, I think, and usually just a T-shirt. Uh, it was two albums that were kind of released as one. Um, I think it's from 1994, uh, and it's a bit of a. There's a bit of stigma, I guess, attached to it because he was, uh, like, a serious heroin addict at the time, and it's like he, impressively heroically. Yeah, so. heroically somehow he made it out of that, um, and you can hear it in the music. But there's something. I mean, when I um i guess when i was first kind of starting to feel like i wanted to make music i was listening to a lot of his earlier stuff like this and it was just i hadn't heard anything like it i was like maybe 16 or 17 
and I hadn't heard anything that was even remotely close to it. And it has the same kinds of sort of, I don't want to say meditative, I don't really like using that word, but just sort of like focused listening where you're kind of, you're listening in a different way than what you would be listening to with any other kind of, you know, pop music or classical music or something like that. You're not listening for, you know, melodies. You're not listening for structure necessarily. You're just kind of hearing what's happening at the moment. And again, like you said, it's sort of a, a different way of forcing you to experience the temporal, you know, passing of it. But uh, yeah, don't worry. I'm not going to play uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. <laughs> I saw that tour. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
play red hot chili peppers <laughs> no what would be the closest thing? no uh, yeah i don't know i mean like i say when i heard that i was just so young and i hadn't heard anything like it and i think that was also the first time i was able to sort of pick apart how somebody actually recorded something mm-hmm. that was in a way that i felt like i could do something similar in terms of layering i heard it the first time when i was i think i was 17 I had a really bad inner ear infection and I had to be hospitalized for a couple of weeks from it. Yeah. And when I got out, I was just like in a different state of mind. And then I started hearing his music and it, I think it mangled my brain <laughs> a little bit. It's kind of amazing. The thing that strikes me the most about it, and you said it's early nineties. Yeah. 94, I think. Because it reminds me a lot of lo-fi indie, like American lo-fi indie mm-hmm. music of the 90s, mm-hmm. that that moment where a lot of bands like Neutral Milk Hotel and Palace Brothers and yeah. uh, uh, Olivia Tremor Control, where it was like not about the recording medium, it was just about getting a song idea. Mm-hmm. And like 
it ostensibly about really strong songs, mm-hmm. but there's all this tape noise and you can hear yeah. the artifacts of, yeah, of yeah. the process where it's yeah. actually very much about the process too. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not just about the songwriting. Yeah. It's it's yeah. so resolutely not about, uh, only about the songwriting that becomes uh-huh. about a greater conversation where that is, that what you just played is. Like there's a really yeah. cool song there, but like his misuse of the recording technology is like, uh-huh. a really deep element of what's yeah. happening. I mean, you know, you have to wonder if it was intentional or whether he just was so yeah. <laughs> mangled he didn't care or didn't yeah. notice. I guess I still notice that with a lot of music. And even like, not that I would compare it necessarily to that, but some of the stuff that I've started doing, I'm bringing my fidelity standards down slightly, let's say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to get more of an interesting, like I'm okay with hum and background noises and things like that. Or even, you know, if I record something in a building and there's a car that drives by, I kind of like that now. Whereas before, you know, it was ruined, had to start over again. Oh yeah. But there's something, I don't know, there's something about it. I guess it's just, you know, maybe a more obvious way of placing something in a space too, as opposed to just, you know, the microphones in the space itself and sort of intuiting that, um, or hoping that the the listener will be able to intuit a space. Actually, having the little artifacts, I guess, just makes it a bit easier. Yeah, I suppose. Well, I feel like the history of recorded music has so much focus on purity, mm-hmm. and now because so much music is in a computer, mm-hmm. the potential for quote purity is incredibly high. Yeah. But the history of recorded music is also about artificial space like we put reverb on Mm -hmm. everything Mm -hmm. but not traffic yeah (laughs) like if you want it to feel like it's in a space yeah just make the space yeah Yeah. that's true although i still like there's you know i guess in terms of live music uh like what we were talking about you know earlier with the with the coughs and the tenny piece i mean that's pretty low-key but i still you know i don't i don't really like listening to bootlegs i don't like listening to live performances of things because it's just it's too distracting for me i guess it's it's you know again it's sort of a different thing that you're listening for as opposed to the the sound and maybe that just doesn't appeal to me as much but yeah i don't know there's there's something interesting about uh for lack of a better word the shitty recording techniques as well yeah when it's it often intentional no totally it implies and i think this sounds like a very literal example of that uh oftentimes shitty recording implies an intimacy Mm -hmm. like you don't go hire a studio to sound bad yeah mediocre recording is usually somehow about like this is the best i could do Mm -hmm. alone Mm -hmm. um with my cheap gear yeah god there's just so much just knowing who recorded that in the circumstance Mm -hmm. (laughs) like every moment sort of has the weight yeah that's true yeah (laughs) of him of of what he went through under it what was happening yeah i mean there's later stuff he had another album later in the 90s that i think was sort of intended to just be like he needed money for drugs basically so he recorded another album and uh he pulled it from shelves um once he got clean i guess but uh i've heard it and it's there's something pretty different about the two like that one is just obviously indulgent and there's kind of nothing to grasp onto there's nothing that feels sort of genuine in it whereas this one i don't know the whole album is pretty pretty strange and i guess the other thing that i kind of noticed early on was there's a lot of tape manipulation in it as well i think he just recorded it all in four track in his home 
And again, that was stuff that I had never really heard in like popular music necessarily. I mean, at that time, I guess if I was listening to anything that was tape based, it was like, you know, Stockhausen, which is just, you know, obviously a completely different approach to it. I don't know. That's where my brain was when I was 17. (laughs) It's maybe somewhat unusual for a young girl in Calgary. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. She can be found at, of course, sarahdevachi.com. Here are some footnotes. I welcome your comments. Please share them at whywelisten.org. And if we've introduced you to music that you want to hear more of, please buy it in the highest quality possible, as directly from the artists as possible, because if we've learned anything from John Frusciante, quality is everything, right? Uh, I know it's a common refrain, but please take a moment to rate or review Why We Listen on iTunes and or Stitcher right now. Not while you're driving or walking, but pull over, give us some stars. Right now we're listening in the background to Alta Cumulus by Else Marie Pod. I am definitely not pronouncing her name correctly. Anyway, I'm Mark Kate. This is Why We Listen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>